So as we start this series this morning, I want you to take a trip with me. Uh, We're traveling a great distance. We're traveling to the Middle East. And we're also going back in time. We're going all the way back to the 600s B.C. Now, let me add a quick parenthesis here. This is a a 2016 parenthesis. Remember that since we're going back into centuries B.C., before Christ, uh, as time goes forward, the years go down. So I know most of you adults know this, but this is for the kids. So when we talk about the 600s, the year 699 comes first then 698, then 697, then 696. So if you were born in 695 B.C., you might have died in 610 B.C. Uh, Obviously, that's not how the people back then understood it, but it is how we date those times today. Okay, parenthesis over, Middle East, 600s B.C., and the king of the block is Assyria. Uh, The Assyrians were a war-hungry people. Uh, The Assyrians were violent and vicious. Uh, They were famous for flaying and skinning their victims alive. Uh, Every Assyrian boy was trained to be a warrior. And at this time, the Assyrian archers are the best in the world. The Assyrians fought with horses and chariots, and because of their skill and because of their ferocious cruelty, they had conquered uh, most of the Middle East. The nation of Israel has split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, southern kingdom called Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell into the worship of the pagan god Baal, uh, owing especially to the influence of that wicked queen Jezebel. And after years of immorality and idol worship and rejection of the true God, it was these ferocious Assyrians that God used to destroy the northern kingdom. Uh, Those who survived the sieges and those who survived the battles were enslaved and relocated and eventually assimilated into other people groups. And within a few generations, the northern tribes of Israel had utterly disappeared from the face of the earth. God's judgment on that northern kingdom for her idolatry was severe, but just. And Assyria was the sword in God's hand that he used to bring judgment on those ten rebellious tribes. So now we have the southern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. It's still here, 600 BC. And Judah, like Egypt and everybody else in the Middle East, is now paying tribute to the Assyrians. Every year, the kingdom of Judah would send money and treasure to the Assyrian capital as a way of declaring, we recognize you're stronger than us. We recognize you're more powerful than us. Please don't come hurt us. We send you some of our treasure. Now, it was during this time that King Hezekiah of Judah welcomed some messengers from a little kingdom called Babylon. 
These messengers came bearing letters from the prince of Babylon as well as a present because the prince of this little kingdom of Babylon had heard that King Hezekiah of Judah had been sick. Uh, You can read all about this in 2 Kings chapter 20. Uh, Babylon, like everybody else at this point, is, is weaker than the mighty Assyrians. The Assyrians are based in Nineveh, the same city that Jonah had reluctantly gone to with God's message of repentance. So the Assyrians, based in Nineveh, they're strong and mighty. At this time, we have messengers coming from Babylon, which is located in what we now know as Iraq. Uh, the city of Babylon is 50 miles south of what we today call Baghdad. And so these were not a people that Judah feared. The Assyrians, yes. The Babylonians, no, not, not so much. So listen to what happened as we're told in 2 Kings 20. Just listen to this. Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold, the spices the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now that happened around 695 B.C. As the 600s moved on, the 690s, the 680s, the 670s, it became clear that the times were changing. The Assyrians began to grow weaker, and the Babylonians began to grow stronger. They were not the only ones. The the Egyptians were also growing stronger. And so here is little Judah, and make no mistake, Judah is a little kingdom. Here is little Judah in the midst of a giant battle for supremacy between three world powers much greater than her. There is Assyria beginning to diminish in power. And then there's both Babylon and Egypt growing in power. And the question that Judah struggled with was this. Who do we align with? Whose side do we join? Who are we going to pay tribute to? Who do we side with and look to for protection? What if we bet on the wrong horse and we find ourselves the enemy and the target of the next great world power? If Egypt is going to be the next king of the block, you do not want to be sided with their enemy, Babylon. And if Babylon becomes the next king of the block, you do not want to be sided with their enemy, Egypt. And so this was a huge question. Who is Judah going to side with? 
Well, a man named Jehoiakim comes to the throne of Judah. So everybody say Jehoiakim. And emphasize that mm, that M at the end because he's going to have a, a successor named Jehoiakim. Okay? So you've got to keep them straight. So everybody say Jehoiakim. Well done, well done. Now, Jehoiakim had a good father. Good father for Father's Day. He had, he had King Josiah was his father. But sadly, Jehoiakim was not like his father. Jehoiakim was a wicked king. When God spoke to Jehoiakim through a scroll written by the prophet Jeremiah, it was Jehoiakim who would hear the words, and then after every few lines, he would have them cut off and thrown into the fire. It is bad enough for a nation to be faced with a tough decision. It's even worse when the man responsible for making that decision is a wicked man. So King Jehoiakim decided to align Judah with Babylon. He made his choice. Is it going to be Egypt? Is it going to be Babylon? He said, we're going to bet on Babylon. And he aligned with Babylon. And then he changed his mind. He was a flip-flopper. After three years, things began to look bad. Egypt was getting stronger. Babylon didn't quite look like they did three years ago. And, and he jumped ship. And he left Team Babylon and made the fatal mistake of joining Team Egypt instead. Babylon didn't like this, as you can imagine. And now at the end of the century, in 605 B.C., Prince Nebuchadnezzar was dispatched to bring Judah in line. Now, I call him Prince Nebuchadnezzar because at the beginning of 605 B.C., his father is still the king, and Nebuchadnezzar is a prince. And as Prince Nebuchadnezzar comes towards Judah, it's not just Judah that he's after. He has bigger fish to fry. You see, Egypt and Assyria has joined together. And together, they are going to fight off the Babylonians. But Nebuchadnezzar has another group of people, a group of people called the Medes, and another group of people called the Persians, and they're on his side. So now you've got the Assyrians and the Egyptians over here with little Judah, and you've also got the Babylonians with the Medes and the Persians over here, and all of these groups come together in one epic, climactic battle of Carchemish. You ever read about the Battle of Carchemish? I mean, world history whoosh, changed with this one battle in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar didn't just win. He demolished the Assyrians and the Egyptians. The Assyrians, <coughs> excuse me, the Assyrians had been around for 2,000 years. After this battle, they would never be an independent nation again. The Egyptians had been a major power in the Middle East for thousands upon thousands of years. The Egyptians would never again be a major player in the ancient world after the Battle of Carchemish. The very history of the world was turned in a dramatically different direction at this one battle. But this means that little Judah hitched herself to the wrong horse. So what would happen now? Well, that's where Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 begins. So look there, Daniel chapter 1, 
verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now notice, by the way, that this passage calls Nebuchadnezzar king. Um, If I have the timing right, he actually wasn't king quite yet, but this is just as we might say, when President Lincoln was a boy, he kicked a cat. We don't mean he was president when he kicked the cat, right? But we know him as President Lincoln, and I think it's the same thing here. Um, You know, the, the Nebuchadnezzar that came and besieged Jerusalem, it's the one that everybody knows as King Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, before the year 605 BC ends, his father will die and he will run back home and he will take the throne and be king. Now, this siege of Jerusalem that we read about in verse 1 is siege number one of three. There are going to be two more. It would be the third siege in 586 BC that will result in the temple being utterly destroyed and the city of Jerusalem being laid waste. Uh, The book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, tells us about the horrors of that third and that final siege by the Babylonians. But we're not there yet. We're just reading about the first siege, the, the first one that happened in 605 B.C. So what was the result of this first siege? Look at verse 2. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is a verse of judgment. It tells us that Nebuchadnezzar and his men went into the temple, the holy place, Perhaps even the Holy of Holies. We don't know for sure at this point. But they took some of the treasures of the temple. They didn't take everything, not not yet. This first siege is something of a warning. The next two sieges are going to see more severe plundering. But here in this first siege, they did take some of the temple's treasures. And what did they do with them? They took them to the land of Shinar to the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Think about that. Do you hear what I'm saying? They took the holy vessels of God, of Yahweh, to the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God in Shinar. Shinar! Why is that a big deal? Friends, this would have been a huge worldview crisis for the Jews in Judah. The land of Shinar is another term for the land we call Chaldea, for the land we call Babylon. But Daniel uses this very ancient name. This is the name used all the way back in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, before the place is called Babel, Babylon. Shinar is the land of Nimrod. The land where people gathered together to build a tower that would reach up into the heavens. Shinar is the place where people sought to make a name for themselves. A place where people sought to unite in rebellion against the true God. 
In other words, Shinar, Babel, Babylon, this place is the ultimate symbol of pride and human arrogance and rebellion and wickedness. And the treasures of God are taken there. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 11? The Lord came down in a moment and he confused the speech of the people so that suddenly the people found themselves speaking different languages and the result was that the construction of the tower was left off and the people dispersed and they went in different directions. It's because of what God did at Shinar that it became known as Babel. The true God showed that he is decisively supreme. But now, look what Babel has become. It is now the most powerful empire in the ancient world. The Babylonians are not just a pagan people like all the other peoples of the ancient world besides Israel. No, the Babylonians are just characterized, marked by fleshly lusts. These are people obsessed with power, obsessed with drunkenness, obsessed with gluttony and feasting and lavish living and sexual immorality of all kinds. In fact, these come together in two of their chief gods, Marduk, the god of power and judgment, and Ishtar, the goddess of love and fleshly lust. To put it bluntly, the Babylonians are the very opposite of everything that God has called the people of Judah to be. So how in the world can God be blessing the Babylonians? How can God, the true God, allow His house, the one place on earth where His special presence dwelt, to be invaded by these people of all people? And how can He allow His holy vessels given as part of his worship, commanded in his word, to be taken captive and placed and used in the worship of a pagan god who stands at the very center of the the place where human rebellion first flourished. Now, Herman, do, do you see the crisis of faith here for faithful believers in Judah? Remember what happened with the Philistines. Remember how the Philistines had come and taken the Ark of the Covenant? Remember that story? The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in the sanctuary of their false god, Dagon. Everybody say Dagon. When the priests of Dagon came in the next day, the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face. And they looked around and nobody saw that and they set it back up. Here's the Ark of the Covenant that they stole from the Jews over here. Here's the statue of Dagon. They come in the next day, and not only is the statue of Dagon fallen again, but now its head is cut off, and its hands are cut off. In fact, God afflicted the Philistines with tumors until finally they could take no more, and they pleaded with Israel, take your Ark back. We don't want it anymore. But now we're not just dealing with Philistines. We're dealing with Babylonians. The people who for the rest of history will be a symbol of worldliness. Yet not only are the vessels of God taken, but there is no record of anything bad happening to the Babylonians. 
We don't read of any statue of Marduk falling on his face. We don't read of any statue of Ishtar falling on her face. There's no record of tumors coming upon the people. In fact, when all this is said and done and the three sieges are over, the Ark of the Covenant will be taken by the Babylonians from the temple in Jerusalem and we will never hear from it again. To this day, we have no idea what the Babylonians did with the Ark of the Covenant. In the ancient world, everyone knew that the battles that humans fight are just expressions of the true battle happening in the heavens between the various gods. So when Babylon captured Egypt, it was the Babylonian gods showing they were more powerful than the Egyptian gods. When the Babylonians uh, conquered the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians saying, our gods are superior to your Assyrian gods. What does it now mean that the Babylonians have come and invaded the temple of Yahweh? Have the Babylonian gods not shown that they are more powerful, more worthy of the trust of people than the God of Judah? So think about those believers in the one and only true God. What was going through their hearts and minds? We we thought we were on the right side. We thought we were on the winning side. We thought our God was the one and only true God, but apparently we were wrong. Our God has been defeated. His house has been plundered. And I simply want to ask, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel, do you ever find yourself doubting God? If if Christianity is true, God, why do you allow the Supreme Court of our land to keep coming to decisions that favor wickedness? God, if Christianity is true and wonderful and blessed, Why is wickedness growing in our land? Why are churches closing their doors? Why is the number of Bible-believing Christians shrinking? God, if you're so good and sovereign and loving, why is the culture turning against your people and increasingly looking at us as if we're fools? Why are we losing, God? You ever feel like that? Could it be that we're on the wrong side? Could it be that the secularists with their big bang and evolution and atheistic worldview, maybe they're actually right? Maybe instead of reading our Bibles and praying and going to church and trying to obey commandments, we should embrace that this life really is all there is. And we should just go for whatever pleasures we can have before we die. Maybe the highest virtue really is tolerance. You tolerating others and their choices, them tolerating you, we all pursuing whatever kind of lives we want to live before we die. Right now, our culture is in the midst of a clash of worldviews, a clash of religions, and right now, Christianity is losing. I read recently about a church building now being used as a strip club. 
Just as the holy vessels of God were repurposed to serve a pagan god in Babylon, now the relics of Christianity in America's past are being repurposed to serve the gods of this world. And yet, we have Daniel. Likely many decades after this event, looking back and writing these things down for us. And did you notice what he said in verse 2? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord gave. In the midst of what looks like an unthinkable situation, Daniel reminds us that his God, the true God, Adonai, the sovereign one, granted Nebuchadnezzar to be victorious. Oh yes, at the time, it looked as though Marduk, the God of Babylon, had proven to be victorious over Yahweh, the God of Judah. Daniel says that is a false reading of these events. It was only because of the will of Yahweh, the will of God, that Babylon prevailed over Judah at all. And in case we miss the point, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God appears three times in this chapter with this phrase, the Lord gave. Look down at verse 9. See it again. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. What caused Daniel to receive favor from this foreign powerful man? It was God's sovereign will. Daniel's God gave him favor in the sight of this chief. Look down at verse 17. Verse 17. As for these four youths, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Why did Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego excel? Why did they rise to the top of the exiles? Was it because they were smarter? Was it because they were naturally more gifted? Was it that they were hardworking? The ultimate answer is deeper. God is sovereign. And as part of his plan, he gave them what they needed to fulfill what he was calling them to do. And then as if this repetition isn't enough... To teach us that Israel's God is the true and sovereign God, we have verse 21. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, by the way, Daniel remained in Babylon even after King Cyrus came to power. But there's a point being made here because you see King Cyrus is king of the Persians, not the Babylonians. King Cyrus is the one who would come and bring the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. Cyrus the Persian is the man who would set the Israelites free and allow them to return to their homeland. In other words, Daniel is reminding us here at the beginning of the end of the story. Yes, God gave his people over to the Babylonians. But then, not only would God bring his people home from exile, but he would bring judgment on the Babylonians for the wickedness and things they had done. What is the lesson here? The lesson is don't draw your conclusions from one scene in the story 
just because it happens to be the one you're living in right now. If you jump into the middle of a book, if you jump into the middle of a movie and you just look at one scene, one part of that book, one moment of that movie, you're going to draw some very wrong conclusions. It's only when you know the whole story that everything becomes clear. So also, if I can be very blunt, Mount Hermon, right now, at least in our culture, you and I are in a scene in which truth is losing. Goodness is being mocked. Beauty is being twisted. And I do not know how long this particular scene is going to last. It may be that in 20 years, Christians can't even find jobs. That in 40 years, Bible-believing Christians are being tried and imprisoned because of their beliefs. It could be that this scene is a very long scene. And for several upcoming centuries, America will become a spiritual wasteland, given over to darkness and moral confusion. Or, it could be that God is setting us up for spiritual awakening, an outpouring of the Spirit, in which millions upon millions, including many of our neighbors and loved ones and friends, are brought to Jesus Christ and are saved. Or, It could be that America doesn't even exist in a hundred years. Or Jesus might come back this afternoon. We don't know all the particulars. And when we try and make sense of what's going on now and where we're headed and what it all means, if we just look at the here and now, we are prone to draw all sorts of false conclusions. Daniel is reminding us that all becomes clear when we know the end of the story. We know how the story of the Babylonian captivity ends. Judah is set free. Babylon is destroyed. In 2016, the worshipers of the true God number in the hundreds of millions while the city of Babylon is utterly buried in desert dust. Interestingly, that Saddam Hussein used to look over out his window from his summer home. It has never been rebuilt. It has never been re-inhabited. It is ruins. The worshipers of Marduk and the worshipers of Ishtar are no more. And here we are today as worshipers of Yahweh. We know the end of that story. We also know the end of the whole story. We have the book of Revelation. We have Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. We have the apostles' teaching in the epistles. We know that one day every knee is going to bow. And one day every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that one day every wrong will be made right, that every noble act that went unseen will be rewarded, and that God's people will be brought to dwell in eternal peace and security and joy forever and ever. Yes, this place, this world that we live in may look crazy at this moment, in in this time, in our lifetimes, but everything is happening in accordance with the will of our good and sovereign God. In Him we have our peace. And so since it is Father's Day, I think this is a good way to close this morning. 
making some application to parents and grandparents. So if you're here and you're a parent or a grandparent, let me just ask you this. Are you preparing your children for the future ahead? Here in the book of Daniel, we stand in awe of men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Because here they were in Babylon. Here they were in a land where their God was dishonored and their values were mocked and despised. And in this book, we see these young men tempted to conform to the ways of the people around them. And we watch them walk through trials while being faithful to God, even when it almost cost them their lives. In this book, we see people plotting against them. We see people trying to bring them down. We see people whose intent is to do them harm. And yet through it all, they stand firm. They know who they are. They know who their God is. If they allowed the circumstances to tell them truth, they would have fallen in a minute. But they trusted their God more than what their eyes could see. They did not fear man. They did not fear what man could do to them. Parents, grandparents, this is what your children are going to need in the coming days. A massive confidence in the sovereignty of their God. A massive conviction that their God is supreme and that whatever circumstances may look like, it doesn't change what they know to be true from the word of God. Maybe you know the classic hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. It says, standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them, the faithful few, all hell to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. How can we help our children to dare to be a Daniel? How can we help them to stand firm when all the world is against them? We have a key answer in what we've already seen in just these first two verses. Daniel was able to stand firm because he believed in an all-powerful, sovereign God. He believed in an all-encompassing God. Compared to Daniel's God, Nebuchadnezzar was nothing. Compared to Daniel's God, all the allures of Babylon worldliness and the threats of Babylon's power were nothing to him. In fact, if we were going to choose one passage from this book as representative of the theme of the whole book, I think it would be from Daniel 4, 34 and 35, where King Nebuchadnezzar himself is brought to declare of the true God his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Dear friends, when the sovereign Lord of the universe is on your side, what have you to fear? 
when Almighty God has entered into covenant relationship with you, when he has wedded himself to you, when he has pledged himself to you and your eternal welfare, what reason do you have for one degree of anxiety or fretting or despair? When we believe on Jesus Christ and we take him as our Savior, this God becomes our God and we are his people. And he will work all things for our good and he will bring us safely into his glorious presence forever. And therefore we can say with trembling, bring on the fiery furnace. Bring on the lions. We will not relish in the suffering. The suffering still hurts, but we will not fear it either. We will not be taken down by the trials that come our way because our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the God who has promised to sustain us through everything thick and thin. Parents, grandparents, are you giving your children this awesome, accurate, astounding vision of God? When tragedy and obstacles come into your life, what do your children see in you? Do they see that your God is a rock for you? Do they see that there is a quiet peace in your heart even when everything in the world goes against you? Do they see that you are content in Christ? Or do they see you frustrated, distressed, cursing and angry, despairing, Nothing will teach your children or grandchildren more about whether or not they can have confidence in God than the example you set when the trials come into your life. Dads, this morning, where is your confidence? Is your life a giant arrow pointing to the supremacy of God? Would your kids be able one day to look back and say, you know, it wasn't that dad was so strong, but he just believed in a really strong God. And so my gospel call to all of us this morning is simple. Will you trust in this sovereign God as your refuge? If you're here and you're an unbeliever, this God is not a refuge for you. He's against you because of your sin. But he has made a way for you to be his child through Jesus Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with this God so that he will be for you as your rock and as your father. And so I would call all of us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and then through Christ to rest in the everlasting strong arms of our sovereign Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.